Hello friends, my name is Jumat McGowan and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. My guest today is the classical singer and teacher, Dr. Ailey Reed. As a classically trained singer, Ailey has toured the world. Her personal highlights being working with Ben Zander at the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra and a solo performance for the King and Queen of Norway. She graduated from the Royal Northern College of Music with a BA in Music and Performance. Ailey, like all of us, has struggled with the impossibility of live performance this past year. But teaching has always provided her with as much professional fulfillment as performance. Her journey into teaching and coaching, again, took her on a year of international study. As a teacher and singing coach, she has pondered the most effective ways to teach music and rehearsal techniques to singers with learning difficulties and, specifically, dyslexia. She is currently developing the Read Rhythm Handcards technique for helping dyslexic children and adults to learn music, which is a brand new technique and currently in the final stages of development. As always, this is a podcast to support the incredible work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They've done and continue to do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. Everything is free at the point of use. Ailey's love of performance is infectious and she brings a, a really beautiful energy to this pod. So, here it is. Ailey, hello. How are you? Hello, I'm very good today. Thank you. And yourself? I'm, I'm Grant. I'm Grant. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, so I'd love to kick off uh, initially by asking what it is you do in your own words, um, because I feel like I wouldn't be able to give the listener uh, as good a sense of it as, as you might. Okay. <laughs> um, I do a plethora of things, um, and especially at the moment in this crazy time, I've, I've never known uh, anything like it. But um, oh, so, OK, so I, I guess you could say I'm a, um, definitely a singing teacher. Uh, I'm a professional opera singer, classical singer. Um, I'm also an academic. I'm a researcher. Um, I cover a lot of different areas. And uh, um, primarily at the moment, I'm... Um, uh, giving online singing lessons uh, and also looking at um, keeping going my, my research and things. So those two things. Uh, the singing is a little bit in the in the back distance at the moment, um, but I'm hoping that will come up in the future again when when life hopefully gets back to normal. That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. As a fellow performer, I'm I'm gagging, itching. To yeah, get absolutely. On the stage. It's yeah, it's it's uh, it's a funny time and. I don't know if people who are not performers, if they get this, it's it's like um, your whole identity has been stripped from you and you're something else that you you don't really know what to describe it as. That's a funny question when you ask me at first, what do you do, who are you kind of thing? Yeah. Um, because at the moment, uh, it's, it's really, I'm not what I usually am. I'm not this performer and, you know, enjoying the stage and the reactions of people. Um, but I, I still get to do my uh, singing teaching, so I'm lucky in that respect. Uh, I still can cling on to some part of myself. Yeah. Well, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, for actors, usually that question is a complete no-no. What have you been up to is yeah. is the thing you absolutely <laughs> cannot ask. It's the taboo thing. Mm. Um, and and I, I didn't know, of course, um, uh, you are the, the first classical singer that I've, I've had the, the good fortune to talk to. So I didn't know whether that would cause the same level of, um, of anxiety, but uh, it's because we've got so much to get into. And, yeah, and because you yeah. do, as you say, you, there are so many things that you've turned your hand to. Um, so before we get into all that, that wondrousness, um, can, can I get a sense of, of you? So where are you from? Um, well, I'm from Northumberland, um, the uh, sort of outer hebrides of northumberland i think uh, armstrong called it who's on the television he um lived just opposite uh, my house actually and he said he lived in the back of beyond in northumberland and i, I felt a bit upset about that really because i said hey i live just across the valley so it's not a million miles away from everything um i uh, i live near a little um town called annick uh famous for the some people call it the harry potter castle 
um, Annick Castle oh, and Gardens okay. for other people. Um, yes. And so, yeah, uh, that's who I am. I started singing when I was eight years old, maybe even before. Um, and I just loved singing and performing and and seeing the reaction in other people. That's what I love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so for our um, foreign listenership, uh, that's in the north. That's in the north of England. Um, we're, we're a bit of a forgotten county, really, because we're sort of um, end of England, start of Scotland. We're in the we're in the middle. We're on the kind of border sort of area. So I think that's how some people see us. Yes, there's a sweet little pocket between um, Scotland and England, um, oh, just north of Newcastle. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yes, it's well, it's it's unloved, as you say. Like it's yeah. it's um it's gorgeous, but not a lot of people know about it. Yeah, well, we we kind of like it that way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep it secret. Well, we won't yeah. we won't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you find singing? So you say you started singing at eight. Were, yes. were there a number of things? Did your parents push you into it? Or, or what was it that, that drew you to it? Was it you, you just knew that you could sing? Well, I, I had this strangely big voice. <laughs> it, was, it was a whopper for an eight-year-old. You <laughs> know, I've been teaching now for over 16 years and I, I've heard obviously young people and, you know, um, but when I look back, my own voice, it was, it was quite big. Um, and my father was a, a pianist. Um, he, he studied before he um, studied law. Um, he studied to be a musician and he loved um, Scott Joplin and blues and jazz. And um, he was in a 60s band um, until he decided that was, that wasn't very sensible and he should do something sensible in life. And, um, yes. But so I've I've always been surrounded by um, my father playing the piano and um, hearing some of his little bands that he put together and sort of you know and I'd go out and even eight singing the House of the Rising Sun and things like that you know um, my grandmother was a singer and all her uh, sisters and brothers um, dating back to the Orpheus Choir in uh, up in Glasgow. Um, so it's it's kind of been in the family. My mother was a singer as well, but she said not not sort of an opera singer like this. Um, so I, I just sort of it just felt like a. I know this sounds totally cliche, but it just felt like exactly the right thing for me to doing to be doing. I, I have lots of energy, and being on the stage, I could release that. That was a place for me to um, channel what I felt I could do and and get out onto the stage and. For me, the stage has always been a, a, a warm, lovely place. I've always yeah. thought of the audience as lovely and warm um, in a theatre. Um, I, I get a little bit apprehensive with the concert platform where you can see everybody's faces. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm getting more and more used to it as the years go on. But if I'm honest, my real love is to be in that black, dark theatre where you're just staring out to possibly the exit lights and the smell of the theatre, even the smell of it. You can see I'm really missing the, the stage. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So it's it's a difficult thing for me to try and mm. imaginatively get my, my head around, right? So you find mm. that you have this instrument, which is huge, because yeah. as you say, the amount of energy that you... Um, that, that you need in order to generate a voice that's for opera, the technique you, I mean, obviously it takes, it takes a number of years to accumulate yes. that, that level of technique, yeah. but you, you find you have this, this really large talent mm. that um, is probably very raw, but all the, 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 uh, forget the, the sort of the, the base elements are there for this. Mm. Um, it was that, did that come about you, you were just singing a song and you found you could hold notes longer, or you, you know, the, your, your diaphragm, the muscularity that, that you were generating was was something impressive. Was it was it scary? I mean, or, or was it something that excited you? Oh, that's a brilliant question. Um, I don't really know. When I think back, I was so very young when I started to sing at first, and it just seemed like a totally natural thing. And my family, I see that mm. other families aren't the same. My family, when we go, we used to go on holiday together and we used to put on ABBA tapes and Beatles <laughs> tapes and, you know, it wasn't all opera, you know. So at the beginning, I, I was singing along to those and it was something so natural. And I just thought every family was like that. I thought everybody, <laughs> I see now my nephew, you know, he said, hey, Auntie Haley, you're singing again, you know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I just thought everybody did that. And um, I, I was lucky uh, because of the area where I lived and 
and the contacts my father had, um, he knew a very good singing teacher, um, Ken Ormston, um, who actually lived in Whitley Bay, which was about 40 miles from where we live. Um, and he didn't take uh, children, um, a, a young people of that age. It had to be always after puberty. And there's a reason for that, for the vocal development and the, the training right. of the voice properly. Um, but when I uh, when I got to uh, audition for this singing teacher, this great singing teacher, he kept saying, no, no, no. My father said, you know, please just hear her. We, we don't know what to do with her, really. It's, it's getting too big and we don't know. <laughs> she must have a direction. It must be trained, this, this thing that's emerging, you know. Um, yes. So I went to him and he he instantly said, yeah, I see the problem here. He said, if you don't start training this voice now, uh, you know, we need to get into the good habits, even at this age, even at this really early age. So um, wow. I started working with him at eight years old, you know, and um, looking back, it does mean that you miss a little bit of other things that other kids do in childhood, you know. <laughs> um, I spent mm. a lot of time practicing, singing, performing, um, just a lot of work, you know, put in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I can, if I can bring dyslexia in um, yeah. at this early stage, did, mm. did singing offer you a respite potentially from any struggles you might have had in the classroom? Absolutely, absolutely. It was something I could actually do that nobody else could really touch at that time. It, it felt just I think that's part of the the release of energy and everything and all my passions and um it, it could come out in music it, it could come out in singing and performing whereas at the time I was really struggling with um with school reading writing spelling uh, I said to my mother once all these things it's a bit like eating cardboard it's so hard <sighs> and it's so awful and I keep having to do it and it doesn't get any easier and all the kids yeah. around me are just you know picking it up and running with it and why have I got such an, a difficulty with it so yeah my music was it was wonderful it was a way out of all the other problems I felt be, I was being crushed by even at an early age yeah I mean that must have been confusing that you feel like I must have something I mean it is exceptional uh, in my in singing but then I get into a classroom and it's it's like a foreign language or it's taking yeah. me twice as long, if not longer, yeah. to, to grasp these things that my my colleagues are. Yeah. And oh sorry, your 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 classmates. Mm. And how was that? I mean, I'm talking emotionally for you, you know, as as a struggle. Was that was that something that was that was difficult? I, quite horrendous, to be honest. And um, mm. now I've done all this research and I look back and I think, I really hope we've come on from there. You know, I really do. I I think that was the, the impetus for me to start doing my research because I so wanted to make a difference. So this never happened to anybody else again. They never felt this terrible humiliation and not coming up to the mark. I mean, even now, even now at my age as an adult, I, I still have issues with confidence and imposter mm. syndrome and low self-efficacy all of these horrible little monsters sit on my shoulder and I still live with them now. And I remember school was a terrible time for me. <laughs> and the irony that I've now gone on and done degrees and masters and PhDs, it, it almost makes me laugh because I hated school, to be quite honest. I, I just hated it. I came home often every night and, and cried. Every night was crying and uh, extra homework, which I did you know, for hours on end. And even my mother sent notes home to the school saying, do, do you, does she have to complete all the homework? Because it's, it's taking about four hours after she comes home from school to complete this homework. And oh, it's wow. just it's just added pressure. It was just never ending. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got this, the trouble at school coalescing with the commitment mm. that you have uh, with your singing. I mean, that, again, yeah. as you say, you're, you're missing out a lot, a lot of childhood there. Yeah, yeah. But I just, at least the singing and the stage gave me something positive to focus on. And I felt as though I could be me. I felt the the passion and the creativity could come out and I could make people laugh, which I love to do. Um, but also <laughs> uh, something that's taken me a long time to get used to um, as a performer, as a singer, uh, is making people cry. <laughs> yeah. at, a, at an early stage, um, 
I feel I, I have huge amounts of emotion to get out to people when I perform. And I often found it, it ended in people crying a lot when they, when they heard me. And the very first time when I was very young, I can't remember what, what performance it was now, but I remember coming home and my mum said, are you all right? Are you okay in the car home? You know, that drive home. And I said, not really, mum. I said, I, I just don't understand. I, I try and sing and give my best and then everybody cries. I don't, I don't <laughs> understand what I've done wrong. And you said, no, sometimes joy can come out in different ways, you know? Um, yeah. So, uh, but that's what I love now as, a, as an adult performer. I love to see people emoting in, in any way. You know, when I teach as well, you get to see a glimpse of that as well. When people really, really start to enjoy their own voices, it, it gives me enormous pleasure to, to actually witness somebody all of a sudden sort of stepping back and the shock and then the surprise and joy at them saying, I can actually sing, you know, <laughs> and what's yeah. more, I think it wasn't a bad sound. So I love that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to park that because that's ab yeah. obviously something we, we're going to go into, but mm -hmm. yeah, certainly from my perspective as an actor, um, preparation into a scene, uh, an emotionally mm -hmm. charged scene. If I sing and I sing an emotive song to myself, it absolutely, it, it, it you know, I'm not going on stage empty. You know, I'm, I'm, I've, I've filled yeah. myself up. There are certain songs which, if I start singing them myself, have an emotional resonance, which is so powerful sometimes. It's sort of like you, you almost want to repress it, you know, because yeah. it's so, it feels like it's completely overwhelming. You, you've, you've got to watch that, actually. And I, I kind of got a real um, lesson in just that particular thing when I was about 18 or so, maybe 17, just before I went to the, the Royal Northern, the College of Music. Um, I worked with this conductor. It was funny at the time. He's called Ben Zander. Um, at the time, he was the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. And uh, a friend of mine, a pianist friend, said, oh, this famous conductor's coming and you must, uh, you must sign up and, and sing for him. And I, and I remember saying, it's so funny, I was so naive. I said, a conductor? Oh, I, I don't know about that. If it was another singer, maybe. But, oh, and she said, come on, come on. He, he's just opening the doors to the first 15, 20 students who sign up. So I signed up and I did this concert. And, and you know, he, I was a little bit annoyed afterwards at what he did because he kind of set it up for the, uh, the BBC Masterclass series. And they, before we started, before he asked me to sing, um, the, this person had come to the performance and uh, he'd fallen off his motorbike. His mother was with him and uh, he'd lost his memory and he uh, was trying to sort of understand emotions again. And it was such a painful story. Honestly, this sounds really, oh yeah, I bet. But, you know, the whole audience, it's like singing at a funeral. You can actually feel the grief of people in the air, you know, and it was just it touched me so much. This poor young man, you know, 20 years old, had lost five, six years of his life. And, and then he, Ben just touched me on the shoulder. He said, right, Ailey, now is your time to get up and sing your Minions aria, you know. And it was terrible because this song was so sad and I already was crying and, and it was on television as well. And I said, Do you know, my singing oh, wow. teachers are going to kill me because my voice wasn't producing because it, obviously when you're, when you're crying yourself or upset, um, you, you, all your, your your throat closes up and you're clogged up and the mucus and everything. It was, oh, it was terrible. <laughs> but it got the effect. Everybody openly started crying and things. So, I, you know, uh, but I learned that that was a real um, experience for me to, to remember that actually I can only go so far. You've only got, you cannot allow yourself the, the self-indulgence of going over that barrier of emotions, you know. I hear about Stanislavski and his magic if and everything. I've been through all that training <laughs> at, um, yes. at drama, uh, you know, A-levels and things like that um, and at the conservatoire. But I think you have to keep a little bit back and, and try and remind yourself. I, I remember singing Madame Butterfly to Wynne Davies, another very famous conductor, um, and uh, I love Puccini, but, you know, and she, it's so sad. And, you know, it's, oh, he's, when he comes back, the story, it's so awful. And he said, hey, hey, hey. He said, the audience don't know that yet. You don't know that yet. So he said, stop being so sad. He said, it's not, you're not allowed to be yet. Don't, you know. So 
I've learned some lessons as I've gone along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I remember at my drama school, a uh, another student got admonished during a, an actual performance for crying during the song. Um, oh. We didn't often we didn't often do singing, yeah. but uh, we do in a third year just as an exercise, you know, to open us up because um, yeah. really singing and acting are the two hardest things to do together. To do them well mm-hmm. is arguably one of the hardest things that you can do as a performer. Yeah. And and she just to echo what you were saying. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a, an age old quote that we were thrown out at us all through our training, which is. Um, uh, the stage is a place where the actor goes to be eaten, not to eat. Yeah. So you have to, you know, mm. you, you you prepare yourself to be this delectable feast for an audience to That's enjoy. It. But yeah. you're, it's not about you gratifying yourself. You know, we all know no. those performers where it just feels yeah. like it's a self-gratification, but it's not that. It's, it is about how juicy a sort of morsel mm. you, you can be for the audience mm. watching. A character you can create or emotions that you can get out of people. That's what I'm, you know, I'm trying to tell a story. I'm trying to be a character. And I think actors and actresses, they're, they're the same. You know, we're trying to, to get the audience into our world to feel something. That's what I think singing, performing is about. Um, sharing a feeling, getting them to feel something, anything. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, so you study, uh, yes. you train um, as a singer. Mm-hmm. And yes. then, and then you 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 get the the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust to travel, and then and was that afterwards, or was that um, um, uh, directly afterwards, or a few years afterwards? Um, well, my life's gone down a funny sort of twisty kind of thing. It's not how I thought it would go. Um, all the time, I've been singing, and um, and I've been teaching singing. Um, I trained to be uh, at one stage a music teacher, a secondary music teacher, um, and that didn't work out so well for me. Um, I, all my, my students, I think. <laughs> um, but that gave me the, the impetus to start thinking about higher study. I, I did my um, degree at the Royal Northern. Um, and then I, between jobs, I've done recruitment. Don't hate me for it. They always say that about recruitment. Don't hate me for it. Um, uh, and I uh, went into recruitment between jobs. As everybody knows, you have to do things in between. You can't just continuously sing or you're lucky if you get to just do that. Um, of course. So I, I was in recruitment and then I started my own business, my own recruitment agency, um, and then on just be sort of on the on the back of that, I then um, did a master's in emotional intelligence and personality profiling. Um, and then I went back into my recruitment with my business and uh, was trying to to hit the market, Pret-a-Manger and um, Itsu and uh, Nando's with a with a type of um, emotional intelligence type of interview test rather than it be the horrible, horrible psychometric tests that seemed so popular at that time. Um, and then uh, the whole market collapsed. I went out to Norway, lived in Norway and was uh, lucky enough to um, get a job teaching for the local council and, and singing um, all, all sorts of things over there. And then I came back um, and then I, I was teaching in this classroom one day and there was this young girl, she was maybe nine years old, and she came to me and she said, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. And I, 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 knew, I, I knew she was dyslexic. I, I mean, I knew just by watching her work, bless her, and the things she was yeah. struggling with that I used to struggle with and I could see her. And, um, and I went to the music teacher training me at that time and I said, look, what can we do to help? There must be something. Um, and he said, well, you go away and find whatever literature and you help her. You know, you, you know you've got it. You, you can help her with it. So I went away and started digging into literature and I found that there really wasn't anything at all. So I thought, do you know, I'm going to have to study this. I'm going to have to write my own book. I will have to, you know, not get angry about it. I'm going to have to, to, to study it myself. And just before I did the PhD, started on that track, um, I was lucky enough to be invited down um, to the, the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust uh, Foundation office. Um, and a panel of 20 would interview me and um, 
it's a little bit daunting. Um, I always say, you, you know, I walked into the room and they said, you know, just be very relaxed and calm. And I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm being relaxed and calm. But I, I looked at who would be interviewing on the panel, these 20 people, and it's Sir uh, something and, you know, uh, the head of the Royal Academy. And, you know, I thought, and I just thought, about, well, I'm trying to be calm, but I'm looking at this list and it's quite, oof. It's quite important, isn't it? And I got into this room and they had one of those, I don't know if you've been in a, a kindergarten school, and they have those really reduced little chairs, you know, and yes. it felt it felt like in the middle of the room, they put this tiny little chair and they all had big chairs. So I came in and, do you know, I couldn't get comfy, wow. you know, I tried to like cross my legs or lean forward. They must have back. done that on purpose. Though, I think surely. they did. You know, you hear about these things, but it was, and now yeah. when I think about it, it was hilarious because I thought they must have looked at me squirming on this seat. And of course I had the high heels on and everything. And I'm trying to look, you know, glamorous or something and professional. Yes. Uh, and I just couldn't Dignified, get comfy. At least. It was hilarious, but they saw past all of that and they said, you know, we think you're on to something. So, you know, we will give you um, this amount of money, this grant to travel around the world to all these major um, schools and methods of teaching music um, so you can investigate, start a sort of a preliminary investigation before the PhD um, of, of what everybody else is doing in the world, bring it back to the UK and share your ideas out. And I said, oh, this is brilliant. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I, I was lucky. I Off I went to Hungary for the Kodai and um, Japan for Suzuki training and Finland, um, off to the States for Orff and the Gordon Music Theory and Switzerland for the Dalcroze um, method. And so a number of methods looking at uh, what they were doing for the neurodiverse, you know, th those who are dyslexic. Uh, what, what, how are they altering their methods or what, what methods are they putting in place? Um, and I came back and wrote a report about it. I love that. So I'm, yeah. I, I love uh, how different cultures approach education. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and certainly if, if you could be, get, give people a sense of the Suzuki method, just, just as, a, as an example, um, I'm, I'm a massive fan of, of Japan and Japan, Japanese culture in general. Um, but if it just, it, I think it would just help in terms of the work you do and, mm -hmm. and how it is it influenced you and, and, and how it is that they perceive the education of a child. Yeah, well, it would absolutely. I think you've hit on all the key points. Uh, each country has an individualized they don't want to say it, but cultural approach to teaching music. It fits within their culture. It's what they they perceive. It's it's who they feel they are, their identity as a nation. So, you, you know, you go to, for example, Hungary for the Kodai, and um, they, they have some smashing ideas, absolutely, um, but taught in these very strict sort of um, Victorian classrooms and you can you know you're still raising your hand to go to the toilet and things as an adult and you know <laughs> they they're they're very um uh, it's it's almost kind of oh I don't want to say Germanic but I have lived in Germany and things and everything is in order you know and and you have to sorry I don't understand put your hand down and uh and, and I don't think that really works um possibly in today's modern you know, uh, British culture. I don't think that old Victorian way actually worked. Um, but it's interesting to see how they how they did that. Um, but the method itself, um, just, well, all the methods, it, you can go uh, onto the Winston Churchill uh, Memorial Trust Fellowship site, uh, look up my name and you can see the report. It's, it's, it's quite detailed. <laughs> I've forgotten how many pages now. <laughs> um, but I went into detail about what each of the different methods was um, and how I felt it might have helped. But unfortunately, the really sad thing about coming back was um, the realisation that none of them were really doing any uh, type of alteration or, or uh, facilitating the, the neurodiverse learner in any way whatsoever. Um, so it was really quite sad to see I was back again in old school training, old methods. Um, and the Kodai is very famous for 
uh, I always think of it as a Kerwin method, actually. Um, Kerwin was uh, British um, and he he was actually working with children who were probably illiterate at church. And um, he designed a sort of a hand movement method to go with pitching, which is very uh, multi-sensory. It's very interesting, but they miss out the glue in the Kodai method now. They've missed out the glue that Kerwin had of understanding what difficulties a learner who perhaps couldn't read or write music or read or write uh, literature, um, you know, he he tried to sort of build in little methods, you know, ray, a ray to the sun and, you know, this sort of thing. Um, so that, that was interesting, but um, it, it was also a little bit disappointing. And then I went to the uh, the Suzuki uh, method in Japan, um, where um, Mr. Suzuki uh, had a whole beautiful philosophy of bringing children up um, with music around them constantly. And, and this just appealed to me completely, um, which has been my life, you know, instruments and, you know, uh, Northumbrian bagpipes or, you know, bass guitar. And, you know, uh, it, so and he decided that he thought a parent should... Um, uh, show an interest perhaps in the violin. He started with the violin, but I see it's other instruments now. It could be the flute or um, the double bass. or uh, And then in uh, Finland, uh, they've taken this Suzuki concept and put it into voice training. Um, so teaching um, mothers at a very early age, you know, pregnant mothers singing themselves so that when the baby is born, they're sort of used to the voice and then little sort of songs as the, the you know, the baby's growing up and into toddler sort of stage. Um, but again, uh, there was difficulties as a dyslexic learner or a person with neurodiversity. Um, without going into it too, in too much depth, um, you, you can read that in my thesis, <laughs> which is over 350 <laughs> pages long. Um, but uh, there, there was difficulties with um, not referring, for the Suzuki, not referring back to any written music or any sort of diagrams or anything. So that relies heavily on a short-term memory um, or, and long-term memory. Uh, and, and that can be a difficulty. So um, that that didn't work. And also, I ran into a little bit of, um, a, I don't know how to say it, a little, some, some conflict with one of the teachers there in Finland, who said uh, to me quite frankly, and I, and I wasn't ready for it, because Finland came right at the beginning of my tour. And mm. uh, she just turned around to me and she said, why are you doing this? Why are you causing such a fuss? I said, beg your pardon? And she said, why are you doing this? We don't need it. You don't need to be doing this. I said, I, I'm doing it because I'm just trying to help. I'm trying to help people like myself who have had difficulties their whole life with reading music and understanding it in certain ways. And I just wondered if I, if I could help. And that's why I'm doing this whole research. So I was, I, it took me back. I was, I was a bit, I thought all teachers were, I was very naive again. I, I thought all teachers were going to be kind and nice and, and say, hey, yeah, we, anything that can help, brilliant. Let's give it a go. Let's, you know, great for investigating it. So I remember it, one of my strongest memories of Finland is, is sitting in this wonderful modern church um, at the back, crying my heart out because I couldn't believe someone would say something like that to me when I'm only trying to help. Um, but it's... Yeah. That was only one experience and many lovely experiences, um, you know, uh, Suzuki in Japan, this, uh, this uh, uh, flute teacher, he was teaching this little boy um, who was unable, he had, he'd lost the capacity to move his arms, uh, sorry, to, no, he could move his, yes, his arms, had no strength in the arms, but he could move his fingers. Um, so the parents had a little seat and they would hold the flute for him and he was able to play. And, you know, such dedication from these parents. They held that flute for the entire master class. And it literally, again, sounds like I'm a real a person who just constantly cries. Maybe I am very <laughs> emotional. But this was this was another level. This, this child was trying so hard. And despite his... Um, disability, you know, and his parents were trying hard and, and the, the smile on his face and the joy he got from it, it was, it was just delightful. So there was some lovely experiences as well, you know. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, I didn't, I didn't mean to uh, jump so far over you, uh, your your singing career mm. as well into um, into your teaching, um, mm. but I'm happy for us to to jump around the narrative uh, as as and yeah. when we see fit. Um, I think actually that's another trait of being dyslexic. <laughs> it is. Oh, absolutely. It's Jumping very around. hard to keep a linear line. You know, I do jump around, and I've I've noticed that with other dyslexic friends. We chat, and um, you know, other friends who are not dyslexic, they've overlooked and they've said, "What on earth was that conversation? You jumped from this yeah. to that and this, and I couldn't keep a, you know, a line of what was going on." And yet, the person, the other person you're talking to, who's dyslexic, they're totally jumping with you from one topic to the next. So. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. You're completely right. We're lateral thinkers, creative yeah. lateral thinkers. We, we'll, we'll go all over the place. Yeah. Um, it's something we've, we've talked about um, a couple of times on this on this pod, and, and it is, um, as you say, there's, there feels like there, there is going to be a change within uh, our education system because it is an antiquated system. Yeah. Um, and and the, and the tragedy is, just to make it clear, uh, and from what, from what I understand is so you you're you're given a a fairly large sum of money to go and essentially develop a skill that you're going to bring back to the UK to yeah. to make um the UK uh a, a more knowledgeable place about certain issues which is exactly what the, yeah. the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust is for those who are curious about it you can essentially pitch whatever it is you do that you're a, an architect whether you're a I don't know, a sports person, you can go to them yeah. and say, hey, I want to go and study in uh, Croatia because they have incredible, um, I don't know, uh, indigenous people who who sing on on a flute or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the idea is that you bring all their expertise back yeah. to the UK and, and it's put into effect. And here you are after accruing all this this incredible knowledge. You're in Finland, you're in, you're in yeah. Japan, you're in Switzerland. America. You go to Germany, yeah. Yeah. America. And then essentially you're met with a system which refuses to change and refuses yeah. to acknowledge people who are who are dyslexic or dyspraxic or, or you know, it, any of those things which, which make them their learning difficult. Yeah. And you can't you can't put it into effect. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and at, at, at the first when I finish with the when I, it's, it's always ongoing with the Winston Churchill, I'm, I, you know, they invite you to do talks and things, which is great to try and get that information out to people and share and you know um and this sort of thing so that's great but when it came then to do my PhD I I was excited because all through my my travels I felt as though I I I didn't have the kind of authority to be doing this although I've been a singer my whole life and I've been teaching and I I felt they said well who are you you you're not a professor you're not nothing so I thought the PhD would then give my topic if nothing else credibility that it would you know people would start to understand that uh dyslexia can't just be uh, contained uh, contained in reading writing and spelling and if you're if you're a singer or a musician with dyslexia of course it 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 stands to reason i don't know why it's so hard for people to get get understanding this that it could be hard for you to read and write music <laughs> and if you're doing that on a daily basis as a musician as a singer you would be learning your scores reading writing music and then that's that's an obstacle as well but it's never covered in the uh, the dyslexic um blurb uh, you know to describe what dyslexia is or and dyspraxia or dyscalculia so one of my first sort of points in my thesis, the first couple of pages, if you if you ever get to read it, <laughs> I don't think anybody. It's just it's in a library and it'll have dust on. But the first couple of pages, um, I say I want to redefine how people see dyslexia and what it really is because it's never talked about, really hardly ever in a musical um, uh, field uh, in mm. a concept. So um, I started to say, you know, there has been some research, um, you know, um, mm. on on music and dyslexia look at um, Mills and Hubricki uh, in the 70s 60s and 70s they were starting to understand that actually dyslexia could affect reading music learning music understanding music um, but we we still seem somewhat uh, it seems far far behind the progress that we've made in reading music and learning music uh, than, than learning literacy and understanding different methods, multi-sensory methods for, for reading, writing, spelling now. I think they have taken a, a step up in education. They have realised, 
aha, if we teach in a more multi-sensory, agentive way, then, then the kids are getting it more. This is great. And, you know, but we still haven't made that bridge in music as much. Um, so that's the frustration. And when I finished the PhD, I thought, great, I can launch into either assisting somebody else with a postdoc or, you know, getting my research out in some way, doing further research. Um, but it all just stopped. <laughs> I, I, it's heartbreaking. And it's, it's, it's quite sad to, to think that all this information is all, I don't know where I can put it, but... Um, you've gratefully given me an avenue here with this podcast to to get this out and maybe some people will be listening thinking yeah we should we should do something different we should find more methods in music not be frightened you know embrace change absolutely absolutely mm. um in in that case i really want to um really platform you i want to get a sense then of your approach um say if i came to you for mm. sing for a singing lesson as as i'm uh, might do um uh <laughs> welcome, to, you're welcome. For, for a song for for <laughs> yeah. uh an audition or something like that um yeah, sure let's talk about uh, potentially multi-sensory techniques mm-hmm. for those people who aren't familiar with them um and and how that might then help us i mean for me yeah. personally i have an issue keeping in time yes um, yeah I have, a, I have a passable voice but it's, it's yeah. just in terms of like keeping in time with the music yeah yeah, it, it, it's, and it's no surprise to me. I mean, the, the title of my thesis was an investigation um, of an intervention to facilitate um, reading and recalling notated musical rhythms in classical singers with dyslexia. So, I mean, you, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. Uh, for me, uh, I've been, after these 16 years of teaching singing and singing myself, you start to kind of get a feel for what are the difficulties. Um, and th- there is no straight cut profile. You can't simply say, this is the problems that dyslexics have and they all have the same problem because that's that's not how dyslexia works. It's it's very different in different individuals. So and the very first thing to, I think, to establish is with the other person, what do they think their difficulties are to start with? Let's just have an open, honest conversation to start with. Where are you having difficulties? Is it the rhythm? Is it the, the notation? Are the notes flying around on the page? Um, you know, are you having to learn your repertoire very quickly? Um, what methods do you have? Can we look at those methods? Um, and a lot of my uh, thoughts are about um, the self-regulated rehearsals that uh, singers, uh, musicians, performers that, that, that we adopt. And I think there's a certain element of it when you reach the conservatoire level, uh, anyway, that when you get to the conservatoire, they think, oh, well, you know how to rehearse and you know what you're doing, so we'll just move on. Um, but, you know, the, the, the oral skills are very difficult um, for dyslexics. Um, and uh, there was a fantastic uh, lecture from uh, a, a, an academic, a professor who came across called La- Laurel Parsons in, in Canada. Um, and she'd been working with opera singers as well. And we, ha- we had a great chat because um, she said, it's the oral skills, isn't it? I said, definitely. It's, uh, you know, tapping out div- different rhythms while saying different things. And, you know, I said, it's, it's just like a bit of torture. You think there must be ways around it. So, um, I, I would look at trying to ask the person if they knew, and then we would do, you know, a little bit of run through of some songs and exercises, and then you start to get a feel for for, for what could be the issue and where you need to work. Um, just off the, the the top of my head for music, um, I, I quite like the idea of, of coloured notes. You may have come across this, and this is um, I, I actually went on their training course. It's a brilliant um, charity, the Drake Music Project in Edinburgh. Um, they, they've been doing some great work uh, with a method called figure notes. And these are coloured notes, depending on where you are on the scale and shaping them for different um, rhythmic sort of ideas. And to me, um, just as a, as a dyslexic, when I look at it and you see the notes on the page are different colours, it instantly takes away that scotopic sensitivity, that black and white horrible issue that I know quite a number of people get and the notes fly around and you don't know whether the notes are same note, double note or, you know, so <laughs> so first off, I think colour is a great is a great thing to use. Um and then uh, I, for rhythm, um, I, I looked at many different methods of teaching rhythm. Um, I, as I say, all around the world, I went to the Kodai School and then the Gordon Music Theory. And, you know, I, I've, I've looked at all sorts of different ways. 
And at the end of the day, nobody was coming up with anything that really made sense to me for, for rhythm and for uh, reference of rhythm. You know, all of a sudden you're called, uh, called upon to do a dotted, a, a dotted quaver or something like that. Who knows what a dotted quaver is sometimes? You panic. It's, you know, it's reading and, and trying to think, oh, what, what rhythm is that? Um, so I developed uh, a system, a completely new original system um, using uh, rhythm syllables um, and, and matching those up with movements. And uh, it's, uh, it's called the Read Rhythm um, Hand Cards. <laughs> it's not out yet uh, on sale, but I'm hoping to launch it because I think it could help a lot of people. So it's, uh, it's a type of embodied cognitive um, idea, um, which sort of gives you sort of a reference or a little hook for your memory and for comprehension. So if the conductor, you're standing in front of a conductor and he says, uh, you know, the orchestra's there and everything, he said, I want you to take that dotted rhythm of the first violin instead of this lady. I can, I can then sort of tap on my leg a little pattern with my fingers of, the, of this method that I've created. Um, and I would start introducing that and seeing if that helps. Um, I believe in body movements as well, physical movements to get beats. Um, and, you know, I, I was very inspired by the Dalcroze method. Um, they do a lot of dancing and it was, it was just joyous doing their course, to be honest. I, the freedom of dancing around to movements, I just, I loved it. <laughs> Um, but I would get my singers to do that. I think it's very important to feel rhythms if you can and dancing and understanding rhythms. And then you can put um, sort of coding and decoding of your your, uh, your actual notes into some kind of system. You know, is it a waltz or, you know, you can start to sort of maybe feel the beats. So I, I'd work on, 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 on that sort of thing with my singers as well. Um, I just, I think... Being dyslexic, the best thing about it is I think I feel very creative um, and I don't have to just stick to one religious doctrine of teaching music. I don't have to be codine. I don't have to be off. And, um, because they rarely, something I should say is they rarely cross over. So you don't get an off teacher saying, I'm just going to add in a bit of codine method here, although I'm teaching off. They do not like to cross over. They're, they're sort of very big different religions of music theory <laughs> and teaching. Um, but I think that's that's totally crazy to me. Just use whatever method and strategies you can to help the individuals or individuals standing in front of you, you know. Uh, so uh, colour, movement, um, agentive learning, agentive learning. So that means hands-on learning. So um, actually getting the singer to, to do something themselves, you know, to, to maybe paint the melody line themselves or or uh, move their arms backwards and forwards for a waltz or something like that or side to side um utilizing different multi-sensory ideas um i think is the is the key it's wonderful it's it's fascinating for me because uh i often found if if i'm trying to sort of intellectualize creativity you know if mm. if, if i'm if i'm not embodying it yeah. so I'm talking about now my lines, but this could work just as well with mm. singing, obviously. Yeah. It, to even learn the lines, I'd have to physicalise everything. So it, whether it is um, reading the lines out loud and then walking around the space and changing direction every single time I come to a full stop or a comma or any form of punctuation, uh, changing my volume, changing the intonation, changing the pitch, whatever it is. Because if I just sort of sat and look at the lines or a song, there's absolutely no way it's going to get in or it's going to take me so long as opposed to when I, I'm sort of, it has to be physical, like kneading dough. It is that uh, I'm really exerting a form of effort into the lines or, or the song in order to, to even, even simply to get it into my head, let alone, you know, uh, apply a choice to it or, you know, um, try and apply that magic. What if from Stanislavski as, as, as you put it. So it's quite fascinating that there are things that I had to intuitively develop, which which are, are things that that you utilize for your for your clients and for your for your students. So, do you help um, classical singers when they're in rehearsal? Uh, do they do they come to you for coaching outside of the rehearsal room? Um, and and then what what does that work entail? 
Yes, um, I, I have helped uh, people in within their rehearsals and things, but um, I would say most of my sort of bread and butter work is uh, is you know singers starting up, singers coming back to singing after a long time, uh, singers preparing for conservatoire um, applications, entrance uh, uh, for their degrees and things. Um, so uh, what, what would it entail? Um, I usually have a consultation lesson with somebody um, and it's it's a very private thing. That's important to say. Um, at this consultation lesson, um, I mean, I, I, quite often it's it's actually a lot of just talking rather than any singing, which surprises people when they come because they think they're going to launch straight into singing. But there's lots of things to discuss before we even start to think about singing. I think especially for, for people who have um, a neurodiverse um, conditions, uh, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, uh, dyslexia, um, quite often uh, they come to me um, and their, their self-esteem is, is absolutely battered or shattered. It's, um, you know, uh, I had one man, for example, um, who, who came to me and you know, his his whole life, he, he was never tested for dyslexia. Um, and yet he said, I just, I'm so very, uh, I'm so very slow and I, I have to write everything down. And I said, that's not a problem with me. We can take all the time we want and, and even record the lessons. That's a great thing because then you avoid having to write and think, oh, how do I spell that? And, you know, so you can get over that. Um, you know, I, I, uh, take um, medical uh, information from people as well not to be intrusive but um, as any good singing teacher would we have to identify have you had for example uh, difficulties with your voice um, have you had any injuries have you seen any NT specialist um, you know are you taking any specific medications certain medications can interfere with um, the, the vocal production um, so that all of those questions are asked but I think primarily it's the, the psychology um, of, of singing and learning to sing and starting to sing it, coming back to it again or for the first time. Um, but I always say it's a bit like uh, asking somebody to uh, run a marathon. You'd never just put them on the block and go, right, get running. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of lead up to it, a lot of preparation. And um, for beginner singers, I say there is a method. There are several methods, actually, but um, I teach bel canto. So there is a definite method involved in singing. And once you are introduced to this method, the confidence kind of grows alongside the method. Um, I'm a holistic teacher. I I try and help the person as well as the voice. Um, and I, I believe the two are inseparable. <laughs> That's probably the wrong word. Um, you, you, you know, we are our instruments. Um, and if you've suffered some sort of trauma or have mental health issues or um, this self-esteem thing is, is a horror to deal with, um, but it, it can be gotten over and we can work in very small steps. Um, and then I, I've seen, you know, flowers blossoming from people and just the change. Uh, I remember one lady came in and she had such stresses. And by the time we'd worked over a couple of months, um, another student uh, was, was coming into the room and she was leaving. And my student said, what on earth have you done to that poor lady? Has she had a haircut or something? I said, no. I said, I think she's just happy. <laughs> it makes such <laughs> a difference to people. And I love it. I love to help people. That's what I love to do. And um, yeah, I can't remember what the question was now. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. matter. Because yeah. that was wonderful. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> how much How much of the enjoyment that you derive from, you know, from seeing those flowers open, as you, as you yeah. put it, um, and, and that holistic duality of the psychological well-being of a person or their confidence mm. plus the technique that you're, you imbue them with, how much of that is formed by your own relationship between your gift, your talent, uh, you know, the, the struggles that you had in terms of your dyslexia. Yeah, I, th I think that's that puts the nail right on the head there. Um, 
you know, I read a fantastic book and I, I recommend it to everybody. I'm, I'm not, you know, um, I don't get any sales from it or anything, but uh, it's fantastic. Fawcett and Nicholson, Positive Dyslexia. It's a brilliant book and um, it's written actually in a style which is possible for dyslexic readers to kind of flick through and get, it's got um, sort of bubbles, the text is in bubbles and separated. And so it's easy reading. And they also have a um, a recording of it. So you can actually just listen to it if you find that more helpful. Uh, But but this book is really good because it talks about preparing the learner, you know, getting ready, the readiness of the learner. Um, But his number one point, which I took from this book, he said, um, and this is a call to all academics and, you know, um, that we should be encouraging more dyslexic academics, more dyslexic teachers. Um, you know, we should have examples within learning of people who have difficulties or differences. Um, and I think when I did my research, all the, the singers that I interviewed up and down all the, the royal conservatoires throughout the country, um, you know, their number one thing was they said, we don't, we don't feel we can trust people to fix this problem. And especially everybody who tries in the conservatoire, not that they did a great deal of trying, I'm sorry to say, but those people who did try to help, they said they just don't understand what it's like to be dyslexic. And they said, you know, when I was interviewing them, I said the very first thing I said was, um, anything you say to me, you know, I, I'm sure I'll understand in a way because I've I've lived it as well. I've been in the conservatoire and I am dyslexic myself. So I know how embarrassing and shameful it is and all these frustrations you have in yourself, you know, I, I get that. So I think, yes, it's it's important when you're teaching people who have um, differences and different uh, dyspraxia, dyslexia, um, that you have not only an understanding, but possibly that you have these differences yourself. And then you you have truly lived the difficulty rather than just talking about it. Um, But it's difficult in academia because it's difficult to get in because you're dyslexic um, and they don't seem to like it. Uh, If you openly disclose that, which I have been doing on my job applications, um, that's another big thing to get into, I think. But Um, yeah that that can be a difficulty but in terms of teaching um, I think it's so important not just music not just singing but anything I had a difficulty with mathematics and uh, I didn't get my I'll be open I didn't get my um, mathematics GCSE until much later in life Um, and I hired a, a private tutor and we spent a long time actually working together to get my confidence to even start looking at the mathematics problems. I, I felt as though I was going to cry every time we looked at these. I said, I just, I feel so stupid. I just don't think I'm going to get this. <laughs> and, and in the end, I got the GCSE. It was fab. And he said, look, it's just the confidence. I think for, for us, we, we, we need that extra sort of um, confidence that if we fail, no one's going to shout, no one's going to get angry, and we're going to be so shamed that we never feel we can fail again. But with with this great maths teacher, he was wonderful, local maths teacher, um, teaching at Nunnykirk, actually, the local dyslexic school. Um, he came over and, and taught me as an adult and, uh, you know, he said, it's, it's just your confidence. He said, it's been so smashed that it's it's hard to start even thinking about learning again. And this happens in, in everything, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's there's so much to unpack there. The mm. the very nature of coaching in and of itself, as you say, there, there feels like it doesn't matter what you do. Because my side hustle, I, I, I'm a personal trainer. So again, it's yeah. that's a form of coaching. And I and I do acting coaching as well. And as you say, yeah. there there is a large part of your job is is about imbuing your your uh, client, your student with with that level of, of confidence. And certainly if it's something that it's not a natural strength of theirs, I am uh, completely simpatico with you mm-hmm. in terms of my maths. I had to have maths teachers and I had to take it when I was doing my A-levels because I didn't get it at GCSE. And uh, I mean, thank goodness my mum forced me to do that um, because I, you know, it it could have, it hasn't yet, but there could well be a a time when I I might need that GCSE. But Absolutely. Miserable, absolutely miserable. And it was, Mm. you're completely right. There's your confidence is absolutely Mm -hmm. in bits. Yeah. It's um, just the fear of failing. Yeah. And embarrassing yourself. And, I don't know. 
just them laughing at you or something and saying, you you know, you must be crazy if you can't do this. <laughs> and you, you yeah. maybe don't even need somebody to say that. You believe it yourself. You wholeheartedly believe that you're, you're an absolute idiot. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's odd, isn't it? I mean, we, we both perform mm -hmm. and we do things that I'm sure most people would find terrifying um, through the conduit of a, of a character, obviously, because it's not... It's not myself that gets up and, and does it, you know. That would fill me with dread. It's my character that's getting up and doing these things, you know. Um, Absolutely. But but then that I, I completely this might not be the same for every dyslexic, but mm. I in certainly in my experience, the fear of failure, the fear of letting people down mm. is often so overwhelming yeah. and horrendous. Yeah. Um and to be able to have it out of um out of like a subject like maths and into a character is such a freeing thing for me yeah. in terms of my approach. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm just, I'm just, that's, that's something that certainly resonates with me. Yeah. It's, it's so funny you say that actually. I, I had um, a teacher at the Royal Northern. Uh, she was uh, art of interpretation. Uh, she was labeled and uh, you know, um, we were doing concert platform and, uh, you know, you come on and you, you're supposed to, the, the idea is you come through the door, you announce what you're going to sing and you recognise your pianist and off you go as a team and you start performing. Um, and I would come in and, uh, and I would start speaking and she just, she just kept saying, no, go out and try again. No, go out and try again. And I came in and eventually I said, what do you want from me? What, what is it that you are looking for from this? I'm saying my name. I'm saying what I'm going to sing. What's wrong with it? And she said, no. She said, you, you've got to really be you. And I said, no, no I, and I fundamentally disagree with you on this because I said, little old Daly could never get up on the stage herself and do anything, you know. I, she can barely read and write. So how could she get up on the stage? You know, I have to be a kind of a confident person to get on the stage. I have to imagine myself as somebody different. That's whole psychology of performing. There's a big area there, isn't there, to discuss. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I have to boost myself up before I get on the stage and think about being a confident person because I don't think that comes very naturally. Well, not for me anyway. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah. Well, I want to close on asking you performance-wise, your yeah. your favorite part your favorite memory from performing oh gosh that's that's really uh hard um there's so many it's like walking into the sweet shop and being asked what uh which sweet do you like the most because i like lots of sweets. well <laughs> yes um, well so, listen well, yeah. two G give us two yeah because okay. i know this is um, a movable feast I, I know today might something might resonate more than another day um yeah what in particular today, it might well be because you can't perform um, yeah. on stage that that one is is the one that's the most important to you right now. I, th I think probably uh, I, I would have to say singing for the king and queen of Norway. That has to be up there, definitely. Um, that was a big wow. deal. Um, and, yeah. you know, being in front of them um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that was just a highlight in my performing professional career. That was great to do that. Um, but in terms of like real enjoyment, um, I'd have to say performing with um, one of my best uh, pals from the Royal Northern College of Music. He trained to be a euphonium player, actually, um, and then went on to conducting and then found that he had a real love of singing. Uh, and, and we sing lots of Figaro duets and things and the joy that we get um, we see our audience just laughing. He he is so great because he's you just you can just bounce off him. You know, he's just he has so much humour and and uh, plays his his characters so well. Um, it's it's a doddle to to you know just bounce off him on the stage and then the audience are, are falling about with laughter and um, I, I miss that. I I even miss the whole build up before the kind of tension and is it all going to work out and talking to the pianist. We have a wonderful pianist, uh, pianist Irene Simonson, and she's fantastic. Um, she can she can deal with anything. I love it. She she deals with oh I lost a page here and I'll just carry on <laughs> of music. Here we are doing a recital and she just a oh, whole page just went, but she memorized it. So she's she's great. Um, so yeah. Uh, singing in Norway, getting back out to Norway. I'm hoping, hoping this summer I can get back out and and sing. Um, 
with my best friend, uh, giving back to people, seeing them laugh and cry. And I just, just being on the stage there and sharing the music again, I, I just can't wait. Um, but also in the pipeline, um, I've, I've got some work hopefully coming up at um, the Surgeons Hall Museum uh, with, a, with a great friend of mine, Kat Irving. She's the Human Anatomy Conservator. I hope I got that right. <laughs> um, and, and we do lots of sort of talks together. Again, she's so much fun. We have so much fun together um, on the sort of stage, as it were. And she brings out in this uh, museum, she brings out all these pieces. We, uh, I'll just give you a quick one before we go. Um, she said, oh, we were talking about Maria Callas. We got onto that and the different techniques of covering the voice and things. And she said, I love to do this. She said, it always um, elicits a kind of response. So she brings out this tapeworm from a stomach tapeworm and uh, Maria Callas famously took a, a tablet or, or took a you know a tapeworm ingested a tapeworm um to try and keep thin and uh so she brings this out when we're talking about this and all the people they sort of oh <laughs> you can see them all kind of getting a bit oh dear and but it's on top of that there are some really interesting things we can look at different examples of the throat and um you know I, I can point out how I would sing and, and what part of the voice would then react at the voice box or something um and so we're, we're hoping to do some more of those talks where we bring out examples from the museum and uh, we bring them into everyday life by uh, talking about how it might affect the voice. I think we're the, the ones in the pipeline, the talks in the pipeline are, um, I think we're, we're going to be talking about embodied sort of um, music and um, sensory sort of understanding how the body can be used to kind of uh, understand and learn so that's that's all coming up hopefully <laughs> um so yeah they're, they're all things I'm hoping to look forward to um I'd possibly carry on my research just before lockdown um I approached oh I think about 100 specialist dyslexic schools in the in the UK um, and I was going to run my intervention this um the read rhythm hand cards um, I was going to take them into schools for dyslexic children. Um, I, you know, I really hoped it would work for them, um, run a whole research program. So looking for possible funding, I shouldn't say that, but I am that the honest answer is we can't do any research without funding. Um, and so I'd love to be able to do that. It worked with the classical singers um, that I looked at uh, in my thesis. And now I want to take it to a young age um, where I can get in before these confidence issues start to hopefully happen at about sort of seven or eight, um, start getting them to understand music in a different way. That's brilliant. That's so wonderful. Thank you. I mean, you answered you answered about four questions that I had uh, very right. neatly at the end. So that's the perfect note to end on. Um, I've, I've used so many uh, musical uh, words today. I'm, I'm, I'm quite chuffed. Uh, that's a perfect <laughs> note for us to finish on. Um Thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. Oh, it's, it's just been lovely. Thanks for that. You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with me, Jude Monk-McGowan. My guest today was the classical singer and teacher, Dr. Ailey Reid. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund. And there are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. And if you really enjoyed this episode, please go rate, subscribe, leave us a little review. It really helps us grow. Thank you.